If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. John is talking. How are you doing there? It's podcast time. We're talking about colourful cousins. We mightn't give details, but I, what I love about Irish families, oh, is there's, they, there's there's skeletons in the cupboard. Oh, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I've got I've got triplet cousins who are called the three twins. <laughs> I always loved that. That's great. But I, I just love big sprawling Irish families and who does what and you know, you know, such and such. Oh no, no, he went away to London. He was never seen again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always happens. No details ever given. No, no details, details ever given. Where's your man gone? Ah, sure, you know. I know. Do you know what's amazing is, you know, Ireland never came up with a really good drama about families. Like, there's no Sopranos. No, the Reardons. No. I was thinking of the Reardons, actually. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a really, really good drama about families. Yeah. Okay, there's an opening there. That's that's right one. The script writer. Aunt Julia and the scriptwriter. I'll be the scriptwriter, you be Aunt Julia. Book by Mario Vargas Llosa. Very good book. Really? About, I... Very, very good book about a young scriptwriter who has an affair with Aunt Julia, who's an older woman. And it's based on, actually Vargas Llosa is one of the great writers, wrote an amazing book called The Dream of the Celt about Roger Casement. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, he was, he was, because Casement, of course, exposed the apocalyptic story of the Belgian Congo. That's right, yeah. But he also, following the money, because Belgian Congo was all based on rubber, went to Peru, where Vargas Llosa is from, and he exposed, again, a horrendous treatment of Indian, indigenous people in right. rubber plantations. And Vargas Llosa wrote this wonderful biography of Casement called The Dream of the Celt. And I wanted to get him to come to Dalkey, and I contacted him, but uh, he unfortunately can't come, which is a real shame because it would be, he's a Nobel Prize winner, the whole thing. Hopefully we'll get him at some stage. But actually, very interesting man, Mario Vargas Llosa. He left Go his on. wife at, at the age of 79. Right. And he went off with Julio Iglesias's first wife. Get out of now, here. Isn't that no proper way. gossip? Yeah, listen, you've got to get deep into your Spanish <laughs> gossip, okay? If you don't read Hola. Like at that age. He left his missus at 79. They'd been married for like 50 years or something. And he went off with uh, Julio's mod. Jeez, I'd say she was probably delighted. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you've got rid of him. <laughs> but actually, speaking of literature and inequality, I've been reading quite a bit, as you know, this week. I oh, yeah. A great book. What gem are you on? It's called Literature and Inequality, Nine Perspectives from the Napoleonic Era Through to the First Gilded Ages. And it's about inheritance and drama and right. inequality, right? So it goes through all the, basically, that some of the great dramas, you think of the great Gatsby, right? You mm, think of some mm. of the great Dickensian characters. You think of Balzac. You know, you think of Jane Austen. Do you remember yeah. when we did Jane Austen? Uh, yeah, Pride and Prejudice. For the Leaving Search. Yeah, 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 yeah. I couldn't get what was going on. I just, I just hated that. And and the thing is, my daughters love it. They absolutely love it. Well, there, there, I think there is a, there is, there's, there's a reason for that. That Jane Austen was writing for maybe the first time ever female mm. stories yeah, for women and taking the Mickey out of the system yeah. completely. Mr. Darcy and all those characters, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But no, the book is about the idea that great art and literature is sometimes ahead of economics and sociology. Well, that's not that's what I take out of it. It actually okay. depicts the society. So it, it, basically you've got the, the Jane Austen, right? You've got Jane Austen, you've got Balzac. That's all about France and England, right? In the age of revolutions. Then you have England in the 1840s. You have obviously the Christmas Carol, Scrooge, all this yeah. stuff. Anthony Trollope's The Way We Live. And of course, Howard's End, you know, this this all E.M. Foster is all about oh, yeah, class yeah. Yeah. and inheritance and all that sort of stuff. And then, you, of course, you go into Mark Twain and the Gilded Age. It's brilliant stuff, you know, Edith Wharton. And of course, you get up to the one of the great books, The Master of the Universe. Do you remember that book? Master of the Universe, Bonfire of the Vanities yes. yeah, by yeah. Tom Wolfe. Yeah, and again, it's this idea that Against the background of class structures and struggles, and we're talking about families, right? And yeah. families and inheritance and people being good enough for the family are not good enough for the, the story yeah. of snobbery. Yeah, absolutely. The story of class snobbery through the lens of... But also inheritance, you know, throughout the years has been the the bane of many families as well, where they implode and and fights and murders and the whole lot. Uh, oh, it's, it's, the, it's the root of... It's what families. destroys families. Yeah. It really is what yeah. destroys And the reason we're going to talk about it today is not of our discussions <laughs> about high literature and what have you, John. Well, no, we could go down that road. We could. Is because in Ireland, this week it was announced that the total household wealth of this country, because again, it's about house prices, right? Yeah. And this is a different take on it. It's actually the familial impact of house prices rising. Total household wealth is 536.4 billion euros. Right. Okay. So, sorry, sorry. So that is basically, if you add up all the value of the houses all over Ireland. Yeah, every single house, you add them all up. Okay. Right. This is a phenomenal phenomenal figure right and just think about the shit storm that's going to happen right yeah. when people start dying right yeah the fights the whole thing so basically what has happened in ireland is as house prices so household wealth should be a function of two things john the amount of houses being built yeah and the price now of course in ireland because we're not building half enough houses right it's all this is all reflective of increased house prices right and what this does then is it creates an extraordinary emergence of an inheriting class that never existed before. So if you think about Ireland, right? When we were kids, mm. our certainly my grandparents had no money, right? And so there was no inheritance. There was no there was nothing to inherit, right? Yeah, yeah. So we are probably now the first generation of Irish people that have actually built up in some democratic form, i.e., house wealth, right? Yeah. 
But prior to this, but many, many other societies who got rich in the 19th century or 20th century have had this. And this is why the literature in the UK and France and Germany and, and America is so rich about class, because they've had upward social mobility for many, many years. Yeah. We didn't have that. We certainly didn't have it in any explosive fashion until about the year 1990. And then certainly yeah, in true, 1990, yeah. you start to be, this society becomes a bit wealthier. And one of the legacies of all this yeah. is going to be this inheriting class who are, who are emerging now and you see them. And it's this strange function of when wages begin to stagnate, which they are, yeah. but house prices continue to rise, which they are, what you get is a class emerging that is actually going to live off inheritance. And that's a first for Ireland. And in order to see what's going on in the world, we're going to go to Paris. Ooh. Your mate, Simon Cooper, who you uh, dissed last yes, time. Yes, well, I didn't. I actually had to apologise to him because I, I wasn't dissing him. I was just dissing the notion yes. of, of uh, these new modern 15-minute cities that we talk about. I love the idea of them, but John practicality. is Mr. Angry Yours pissed off Insta Lorgan. Yes. That's just, that won't work. I, I do have to apologise to Simon. <laughs> I'm sorry, Simon. Let's go, let's go and uh, let's go and chat to him. Simon, how are you? Very good, thank you. Very impressive that you were actually playing tennis on a Saturday morning. This now is impressive stuff. The wife made me do it. She's become a tennis obsessive. Anyway, Simon, this article you wrote the other week I thought was fantastic. Give me the thesis of it. Well, the thesis is that the middle class is moving from salaries to inheritances because salaries in many countries have been stagnant for 15, 20 years. In fact, in Italy, you might well be earning less than you were 20 years ago. In Britain, you're probably learning less than you were 15 years ago. While at the same time, house prices have soared. So if there is a house in your family, just think about it. Uh, let's say your family has a house in Dublin. The parents, grandparents die and you sell it, well, you might end up, even if you have a sibling, with, say, 500,000 euros in your pocket. Yeah. Well, the way wages are going is 500,000 euros can be, say, 17 years work, 17, 20 years work quite easily. So that's half your working life in salary. You just get in a lump if you're lucky enough to inherit. So you see that the relative importance of inheritance is going up in these families, and you get people at 50, even at 60, sort of waiting for their parents to die so that they can get that lump of money. And the salary is going nowhere. And then living in parental homes into their 30s is quite common now. If you think of professions like lawyers, academics, uh, bank managers, you know, in the 1960s, those people would have bought a house in their 20s. Now they can't. And before we talk about the economics, you also were talking about how you've you sensed this through watching TV shows, that the the, the, the lines, the sort of storylines of popular TV shows are dealing with this. Because so, I've always been intrigued the way in which art and uh, literature gets the zeitgeist. It understands what's going on before economics and politics catches up. So give me a few examples of that. Yeah, well, during the pandemic, uh, like everyone else, I began watching a lot more Netflix. And I realized that many of the shows that I like were really about heirs. So Years and Years is about this British family, you know, throwing forward from about 2020. The country unravels. Uh, many people end up living in the grandmother's big rambling house in the suburbs of Manchester. Nobody can make any money. 
there is Arrested Development, which is a very funny show about this uh, American family, the patriarch, a crooked businessman ends up in jail. And the family had all, everyone, the adult children had all lived off this guy's illegal earnings. Everyone suddenly has to find some money, which they don't like. Uh, Lena Dunham's Girls starts with her kind of hanging around in New York with her, you know, cool friends in their early 20s. And then her parents say to her, look, we're going to stop supporting your, quote, groovy lifestyle. And she's shocked because she said, look, all my friends live off their parents. So these shows, and there are other examples, Shit's Creek is a is a very nice one as well for connoisseurs, are about people who are living off the patriarch, the grandparents, the um, the kind of gold mine within the family and not off their own work. And what do you think are the consequences of all this? Or will be the consequence of this? I mean, one thing is that the family structure remains intact much longer, uh, where you as the child remain the child often even into your 40s because um, you don't have enough money to move out. I mean, the average age of leaving home now in European Union is 30, which is astonishing to me. Yeah, which is extraordinarily high, and it's really quite different to our generation. It also feels very different. Again, though sometimes statistics bear out points of evidence, but there's a feel now of drift amongst, you know, late 20s, early 30s folk, big time. Yeah, so they, they, they don't hit the milestones of moving out, uh, marrying, having kids early. And um, they also, their ambitions are often deflated because, you know, this is the most educated generation in history, you know, people in their 20s and 30s now. But, you know, having a BA now, you know, in our day, having a BA was pretty cool. When I graduated in Britain, only about 15% of the British population got BAs at the start of the 90s. Now, half of British people get BAs. So in other words, the undergraduate degree is the new high school diploma or whatever you call it yeah, in Ireland. the leaving search. So you, you feel, you know, I'm 21, 22, I've really got a proper education, got a better education than your parents, but nobody wants you. You've got no specific to go. So you end up serving coffee pre-COVID on um, eight pounds an hour, whatever it is, and you can't build a life. So your ambitions are thwarted. And then you think, where is the pot of gold? Well, the pot of gold is my parents' house. One day they will die. And so this becomes a very unhealthy way of thinking. And so it's not just a few families, like uh, Thomas Piketty writes about this in the novels of Balzac and Jane Austen in the 19th century. This is really the 1% that lives like this. Now it's really quite a broad section of the middle class. So what you're saying, because it's it's unusual, I'm going to come back and talk about it with John and I, uh, the Irish case, because the Irish case is unusual in the sense we had no inheritance at all. You know, the very, very tiny percent of the population were bequeathed anything, in contrast to the UK or France or or other European countries that, that got rich in the 19th century and therefore had inheritance. But I'll talk about that in, in, in a sec. What I want to talk to you about is the this idea of the unhealthiness of the inheritance society. The fact that you actually, you're undermining people's sense of worth all the time. Yeah. And also, you know, people when they're young and ambitious, they want to move to the most dynamic cities like you did, you know, going to London in your early 20s without any money, but you got a job and you were able to build a career. That's very difficult now to move to London, to New York, to San Francisco, because how can you afford it, you know, as a youngster, unless you have an inheritance, unless you have parents willing to support you. And so if you don't, then all the economic opportunities of these great metropolises is closed off to you. You know, the, the 22-year-old David McWilliams of today might not be able to get to London. Yeah, no, that's, 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 because I mean, again, if lots and lots of Irish people listen to this podcast will have done that. 
gone to New York, gone to London. As a matter of course, like we, we kind of knew when we were in school, this is what we were going to do. And then you get into the big smoke and you, you see if you can swim over there. And if you can, all, all the better. But let's look at Piketty. Piketty made the point that historically, this has been the norm, the inheritance society. Is this the case? Yeah, I mean, he says that for most of history, capital tends to grow faster than salaries. Yeah. And then you get this very strange period at the after the Depression and then World War II, where a huge amount of wealth is destroyed in Europe. So, you know, you thought you were going to inherit your parents' house? Well, no, because it's been bombed or it's been yes. appropriated by the communists. So you have nothing. And so you think of all these Germans who moved from East Prussia in 1945 and found themselves living, you know, five to a room in the Rhineland. These people had nothing. And the class society of Germany was just destroyed. And so he's, Piketty, you know, he focuses very much on the 1945-1974 period where he says, you know, this is a period of unusual equality because wealth has been destroyed and then the economies are growing very fast. So salaries actually are growing faster than uh, capital. But he says, you know, post the old crash, 1973, we really go back to this period of, you know, slow wage growth and then fast uh, capital growth. You know, the stock market has boomed since the 70s. Housing markets have boomed. And, and then if you look at a country like, I've always think, you know, where is the canary in the coal mine, right? Because certain countries are further along this path. And you make the point that Italy could be the future for all of us. Yeah, well, Italy was the future of populism, if you remember. So they sort of invented insane, um, you know, lying leaders with Berlusconi. And now Italy might be the future of living off capital because, you know, there is no country that has kind of gone economically backwards faster Italians are pretty, probably hard to calculate with COVID, probably worse off now than they were in the late 90s. Astonishing to think. Argentina is similar. Actually, our friend Martin Lusto said in your podcast, but it's very rare. And so what do Italians do? Well, normally Italians have built up a lot of wealth over the centuries. You know, they don't tend to buy houses. You know, the normal Italian bourgeoisie lives in the family home. They often have a uh, summer house as well. And because there are no more children being born, Italian birth rate is about one per woman. You know, it's in all of Europe, it's pretty low, but in Italy, it's really low. And so you don't really have to save for the future as a family. You could just consume your wealth now. So the savings of the grandparents are being used to support the grandchildren who don't have children themselves. So that might be a kind of, that's a kind of a dystopian future for all of us. And finally, you're talking in the piece about years and years, a show I haven't seen. And you say that the UK, in your opinion, I mean, again, you're, you know, you working for the FT, you were educated in the UK, or at least university educated, you say that this could be quite an accurate depiction of what might happen in the United Kingdom. Yeah, I mean, years and years depicts a, an unravelling UK where, you know, in around 2030, things are much worse than in, say, 2015, and people look back on the glory years and say, oh, you know, wasn't it great in the old days? I mean, the UK has not done worse, um, although wages in the UK only just surpassed the 2007 level just before the pandemic. But so the UK has not done really well. I mean, it could be the future for a lot of us, partly also because we're now adding on climate change. So climate change means that a lot of assets are going to lose value. You know, your family's beach house, the whole city of Miami, the whole city of Shanghai. And we might have to spend a lot more of our wealth on just kind of shoring up our defenses. And so maybe the whole world is becoming downwardly mobile. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned Martin Lusteau. This is a an exclusive bragging right on the podcast. Is myself and Martin Lusteau met the Pope last year in the Vatican. 
And it was a really extraordinary, fascinating meeting uh, because Martin, as you know, was very well known in, in, in Argentina. And we had a private conversation, which was all about uh, a thing called Laudatum Se, which is a papal encyclica that he wrote uh, about seven years ago that Martin mentioned, actually, when we, when we met in Kilkenny. And he said one thing fascinating to us, because they were both, the, both clearly Argentinian, but the Pope is Italian-Argentinian. His parents are Italian. Mm. And he said, this is my fear for Europe, that what happened to Argentina happens here. Jesus, that's a scoop, man. I, I want to quote that. Which is, uh, you know, he was just saying that, you know, that basically, you know, if you look at what could happen in Europe, he's making the point that we never thought in Argentina we'd go this way. If you had told us, he was saying, like in the 70s, even in the 80s, he said, if you had told us that we would end up, you know, with a middle class that shrinks very, very quickly, he said, we probably wouldn't have believed you. And yet it happened. The world's first undeveloping country, uh, my friend Jorge Valdano calls it. Yeah, well, we'll leave it there. Listen, Simon, thank you so much. Cheers, Thanks, man. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I think Simon may have given me there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> but one of the things that he was saying that, that you know, the last thing he'd be saying there was, the phrase, which is an interesting one, of the undevelopment of, of a, country. a country. Yeah, well, I mean, so let's go back to, there is an expression in economics called the Brazilianization of an economy, right? Which is basically what happened to Brazil and Argentina. Right, yeah. That, this uh, is what the, you, you, the, the well, Pope was, was saying. Very, it was a really, it was a fascinating, I, was, I mean, it was a fascinating conversation because Martin and myself were talking to the Pope, which is really kind of amazing, actually, about this encyclical that he wrote, mm. Laudatum Se. And that is an environmental encyclical that he wrote about the world and global poverty and all sorts of amazing stuff. And it's, mm. it's a real sorry, shame. what year did he write that? About 2016. Right. right? Okay. And one of the real, sh- you know, it's, a re- it's a real shame that we never see that side of Catholic theology because of what the Catholic Church did here and because of the abuses wow. here, yeah. we don't see the other side. You know, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing Catholic intellectual tradition, which is, goes all the way back to Aristotle and through Virgil and Dante and, you know, all these yeah. extraordinary... and the erotic poetry of, the erotic poetry of, 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 of your man. What's the, oh, Pope Pius, Pius II. Yeah. 
He's my man. Pope Pius yeah. II is my man. Like if it wasn't for Pope Pius II, we wouldn't have printed books. But if you if you think of European philosophy, right, and European thinking going back to the Greeks, so basically the Greeks gave it to the Romans, and the Romans thought the Greeks were a bunch of effete sort of dandies, right? The Romans were more muscular, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So for most of the Roman Republic, they looked down on the Greeks, right? But then in around the first century BC, into the first century AD, they started to get back into Greek ideas, right? Yeah. And then, of course, you get the Dark Ages, and those Greek ideas of philosophy and democracy mm. are, are are null and void and are, are trampled by the Goths and the, all, all, you know, the, all the various tribes come. But then the Renaissance comes, and they go back to the Greeks, the humanist Petrarch and all that sort of stuff. So going back to Greek ideas. Yeah. But then, of course, side by side it, it, with the Greek ideas are all these Christian ideas. Yeah. And Catholic ideas, and it's it's just it's unfortunate here in Ireland because people's experience of the Catholic Church has been so profoundly traumatic it that, has, that it there's has. big bits of Catholic theology, th- thinking, ideas that we don't really ever we, we don't really give ourselves the permission to go back to because the Catholic Church were pretty appalling here. Yeah, but so then when you see the Pope writing things about economics, my in- instinct is not to read it. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But Martin, exactly. Martin, who you know, and yeah. uh, uh, said, no, we should read this. So we read it. And anyway, along the short, we ended, ended up meeting him. And it was a very wide-ranging conversation. However, what I found very interesting was their discussions about what might happen to Europe. And it wasn't like he was just, he wasn't saying, I think this is going to happen. Yeah. He said, look, you know, we've seen countries that de-develop, that undevelop. Yeah. And he said, like our own country. And like our own continent, Latin America. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, that was quite interesting. And what Simon is saying there is that countries do go bad and societies do go bad. And one of the leading indicators, he believes, could be this inheritance that. Right. That okay. it's actually. It's, it's, so explain that a little bit. So more. basically, what he's, what he's saying is that what we feel as Europeans since the Second World War is that. And, and when we look to the United States, so mm. Westerners, that the idea of the economy getting richer and you getting richer than your mum mm. and your kids getting richer than you, that's natural, right? Yeah. We believe yeah. that. But that actually is not that particularly natural. And that's when we go back to Jane Austen. Because it has a limit. A, it has a limit. And B, it was a productivity moment that the Europeans had after the Second World War. Ireland had it much later. We probably kicked off in about 1990. So we're about 30 years behind the rest of Europe. Right, okay? what do you mean a productivity moment? So what happens is the, the, the elixir for economics, the real, the juice that drives the economy, mm. productivity, which is basically getting more for less. Right? Yeah. So you put in less yeah. stuff, you get more out. Sure. That usually is a function of education and the capital base, right? So in the case of Ireland, take the idea of, you know, it's much easier to plough a field with a plough than a spade, right? Sure. So the plough is the technological moment where you think, whoa. Okay. And then the tractor is the technical module where where the, where the horse-drawn plough is. is. Okay. So all those, so, so you get these movements in technology, which profoundly increase the output of individuals. And therefore, once your output goes up, you can get paid more yeah. because your wages can rise because you're producing more. And Ireland probably took off only in about the 1990s. Right, yeah. So what we had is we had the education, but we didn't have the capital base. And then by... 1990, we began to get the capital base and the education yeah. and the country. And then the innovation follows. And the innovation follows. And, yeah. and, and the other problem in Ireland, and it comes back to the Catholic Church, I've always believed that the type of people who are innovative and creative 
tend not to live in societies that suffocate from too much religion or ideology. So the type okay. of people, the type of Irish people who were setting up companies in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, they were still here, but they were setting them up in England. They actually left. Because right. okay. the creative economic brain hates being suffocated by dogma. Yeah. So I've always thought this idea that, that we should have a Tinder for ideas should yeah. be should be <laughs> the aim of all countries. So you yeah. swipe left and swipe right and you have a Tinder. So you can get my idea. Right. And that never, ever, ever succeeds in dogmatic societies, whether it's the Soviet Union or Catholic Ireland. So you have to get rid of all the dogma in order to allow the creative misfits to flourish. Right. But you need misfits. Okay. I mean, odd, you know, people who are a little bit So sorry, are you, are you saying that, that these creative misfits... They are, emigrated from Ireland. Yeah, but they're generally not religious at all. I think religion Anti- it completely suffocates, I think, dissent, right? So if you look at the relationship between dissent and economic innovation, yeah. it's very, very strong, right? And if you live in a society that suppresses dissent, and the biggest suppressor of dissent is the Catholic Church saying, you can't sleep with him, you can't sleep with her, you have to be married, yeah. you know, you can't yeah. have contraception. Think about how oppressive that is and how suffocating that is. Right. And what that tends to do, that goes with the suite of characteristics of societies that are backward, that are insufferably bureaucratic, yeah. that are dogmatic. So where the energetic, interesting, creative person says, man, I'm not going to live here. Yeah. You know, okay. and so if you think of all the guys on our road, the big brothers and big sisters, yeah. of, Loads of them left, not because of just economics. They left because the place was oppressive. Yeah, well, that's true. That's you know, true. They, uh, that's one of the reasons why I left too. Yeah, it was a, yeah. it was really oppressive. So if you can go back a generation before us, yeah. imagine how oppressive it was. You know, yeah. and then you know, you know, you, and you, you read like Flann O'Brien and just the, the oppression of the place. And that's why I can never get into Flann O'Brien because it makes me sad. Oh right, but but anyway, to bring this back then ah, yes. to inheritance true. now, what yeah. what does it mean? Okay, so. What is happening is large swathes of the middle class find themselves in jobs and professions where the wages are stagnating. Yeah. At the same time, house prices are continuing to rise because of financial engineering and all sorts of stuff. And what it means, therefore, is that the return to work vis-a-vis the return to assets is falling. Right. Mm. And then what it means is that people will become completely locked out of the society. So you will have a hyper-rich inheriting class, like the Gilded Age, like the Great sure. Gatsby, right? And you will have a locked-out class who have no access to anything and have to work mm. even harder and harder and harder to afford the houses. And all the while, you have sort of what I would call a drone class. In the way, in the, in the in a bee's nest, yeah, right? You have the drone. Who doesn't want to be a drone? Sitting yeah, around, yeah, yeah. smoking fags, having pints, right? Okay. And you have the worker bees and you go to the queen bee, right? Yeah. So what you're finding is, and this is what Simon's talking about, is the, in societies that become far too unequal, you have the drone class and you have the worker class, yeah. right? That's the first dilemma. But the second dilemma is what happens with really rich people is they're obsessed about not giving their money away. So what you found in, in Latin America was as the countries got richer, capital flight got more dramatic. Right. Right. So Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, the rich people who had all the capital took it offshore. Yeah. And that profoundly destabilized the system. 
Yeah. Right. So every time there was a shock to the economy, every time there was an exchange rate shock, for example. But that was part more, of the shock, though, that wasn't was it? part of the shock. So it was that kind of vicious cycle It's that there. vicious cycle that if, if a small class gets too rich and gets too much of the goodies, yeah. right, what they do then is they try to prevent anybody else getting it. And how do you get your hands on assets? You tax them. So they become offshore tax exile. But then, like, politically, then, if there is a small cohort of people getting richer, the middle or lower class yeah. are getting poor. They don't have rel- yeah, relatively, relatively poor because yeah. they don't have access. To the- so therefore, theoretically, the shift then would be more socialist. So the, the capital flight is because of a fear of socialism. Then. Exactly. But it's also, it's, it's a fear of taxation. Yeah. It's a fear but- of somebody else. And that they dress it up as socialist or communist or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But what, what Simon is saying is we have seen this happen before. Latin America is a warning from the recent past yeah. of what can happen. Yeah. So if, for example, Europeans don't have babies, right? If you don't have kids, yeah. right? If our wages continue to stagnate, if house prices continue to rise, the implication, societal implication of that and the familial implication is huge crises within families when somebody dies because everybody wants to get the goodies. Yeah. But until that person dies, the families stay together much longer than usual. So they're all living under the one roof. So if you think of our generation, right? Yeah. We left. I left home when I was nineteen. It's like, bye. Mm. I'm out of here. Like I, I haven't lived in my parents' house since I was nineteen. Yeah. Right. And yeah, you're probably yeah. the same, right? Yeah, I was twenty. I yeah. Think, yeah. So we're gone, right? So our families broke up early, and the relationships between the families became, I think, more adult earlier. Right. Whereas what he's saying is that if you have these families that are suffocating because they can't escape from the tyranny of inheritance because they're all waiting for someone to die and they're living under the one roof, like many in, in Italy, the family becomes dysfunctional then. And lots and lots of families and split between, you know, one of the sons who's waiting and therefore decides, well, I don't really have to achieve very much. So they underachieve waiting for the inheritance and become probably more malignant and more difficult. Yeah. And then other sides of the family move away. But there's the oppressive presence of a matriarch or a patriarch. And I think that's probably much more worrying than but, just the economics of it. But, but wasn't this always the way, though, back in rural Ireland, when, you know, you'd have the farmer yeah. who owns 100 acres or whatever yeah. it is. That would be a big farmer now. And uh, Well, maybe it is a big farmer. But it was like my, my great-grandfather had a big old farm down right. in and the, Tipperary. And the killings in the family looking oh for it. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> and, but it was the, it's that whole thing. So if you have four sons, say, and they get 25 acres each, then they end up with their 25 acres. They have a family. And then that's split down even further and it's just sliced and diced down to nothing. Now you're actually describing, John, the Irish economy before the famine. Yeah. And after the famine, everything changed. So after the famine, they stopped. So it was one favoured son. Yes. So basically one son gets the farm, one son becomes a priest. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. The other son becomes a copper or a soldier. And the other a drug dealer. Well, always a drug dealer. <laughs> always a drug dealer. Are the other effects off and emigrates. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the way we solved it. But if we don't So how have, do we solve this one now? That's, that's what Simon's saying. It's much more tricky. Because emigration solved a lot of our problems in the past. Yeah, but we've nowhere to go now. And no one will take us. And you need money to go. You need money to go. And as he was saying, you know, that emigration... That we did. And he yeah. did as well. Simon's originally South African, then went to Holland, then went to the UK. So right. he's been, you know, knocking around. And that's quite typical of our generation. That idea 
that you can emigrate. So if you think about migration, migration is a transformative act. I've always believed that the person who sits up and says, I want to move to the city, I want to move out, is basically making the decision to transform themselves. They've mm. said, like, I'm not for this place. I might have been born here, but I have bigger ambitions yeah. and I want to get the hell away, right? That sort of upwardly mobile, aspirational attitude to life was a function of an economy that was growing and where inequality was actually diminishing. So you had opportunity, yeah. right? What we're talking about now is an economy that's stagnating, where inequality is growing, where opportunity is growing, and that sense of I can transform myself, which is elemental to humans, really elemental to yeah. humans, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What he's saying is there's a danger that that aspiring, striving, go-getting nature, which is deep within all humans, will become oppressed and suppressed by what's happening in the economy. And that's really dangerous. Fall in love, ah, you fall in love. 